0: Welcome to Zen Chakra. The goal of this podcast is to bring you the best tips and techniques on things like energy healing, the law of attraction, the chakras, lucid dreaming, meditation, and emotional freedom from some of the best minds in the New Age sector. Join us each month as we open up the conversation and help you on your journey to enlightenment. Hello everyone. Welcome to Zen Chakra. I'm your host, Amanda, and today I have an interview lined up with clinical psychologist Jamie Gritch, who received her PhD in psychology from Vanderbilt University. Now I know what you're thinking. How does modern-day Western medicine fit in with ancient practices of spirituality? Well, if you ask her, they're one and the same. One of Jamie's defining qualities as a psychologist is her use of holistic practices to help you connect your mind body and spirit so you enrich your life. She owns her own private practice here in Tennessee. She's an Iyengar yoga instructor. She's certified in a process known as EMDR or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Say that three times. And she's certified in the very popular Imago relationship therapy. Now if that wasn't enough, in addition to all those other wonderful things, she's also helped create a website called BefriendMe.com. It's a social network Kind of similar to Facebook, but acts more like eHarmony in that it actively matches you to other people with similar interests. Now, as I mentioned, what makes Jamie so special as a therapist is her holistic approach to really wanting to help people. She believes that practicing yoga, connecting the mind, body, and spirit are essential to a fulfilling life. Her goal is to help people stay present, connect with the divine, and listen more deeply to our hearts and soul purpose. According to her, spiritual growth isn't only about finding or connecting with whatever you consider God to be, but also about growing as a person. We all have the ability to find happiness and joy, regardless of what our circumstances have been or currently are. I have personally had the opportunity and privilege to work with Jamie and find her work to be a significant refuge in my own life. Because of her, I was able to reconnect with my spirit look deeper into myself and remember the joy in my own journey too often we allow our life circumstances to define us in those critical moments of weakness and we become paralyzed myself included so thankfully jamie's work allowed me to step outside of those circumstances see the bigger picture and it allowed my spiritual journey to start once again. Jamie, welcome to the show. I am so excited that you're here today. I've given the listeners a quick rundown of your many successes through your private practice and your website, BefriendMe.com, and your yoga, but I wanted to back up just a little bit and find out a little bit more about you before becoming a doctor. So what led you to becoming a clinical psychologist?
1: Amanda, I'd have to say fate. I didn't plan on it. I loved psychology as an undergrad. Those were the only classes I wanted to take. They just fascinated me. I graduated from college and didn't know what to do with myself, so I thought, what am I good at? I thought, I'm good at being a student, so I guess I'll go back to school. (laughs) And what will I go back to school for? Well, psychology, since that's what I love. And I thought I was going to be an academic, a professor. I couldn't imagine being a clinical psychologist. And... I graduated from, I actually began to think of myself as more of a clinician and uh, split myself between clinical psychology and social psychology in graduate school. But I still didn't think I would really be a clinician. I just thought I wanted to study that. I was really interested in relationships and I thought it only makes sense to study relationships from a clinical background. Uh, And then I graduated and got a job, and they let me go, and I thought, okay, time to be a therapist. (laughs) So it was kind of an accident, (laughs) but turned out to be exactly the right thing for me. Wow, that is
0: really fascinating. Did your spiritual background shape who you became as a doctor, or did becoming a doctor shape your spirituality? I'd have to say
1: they happened at the same time. As I was becoming doctor, I started waking up spiritually. So they've just both evolved. And being a therapist has certainly evolved my spirituality because of all the contact I have with clients who are struggling with that and my impetus to help them and figure out how. So it's been a mutually evolving process all along. Your spiritual
0: approach of holistic therapy really encourages an overall sense of well-being and understanding for those who are working with you and it allows a deeper connection to self without the use of drugs. So for those who can't personally work with a healer or someone like yourself, what are some things that people can do at home to really achieve that sense of well-being?
1: Well, there are probably a million books written about that. I like the surgeons uh, lately of positive psychology and just the choice to focus on positive things, to focus on gratitude, to connect with things that make you come alive. And sometimes it boils down to that just being a choice. And we're trained in our culture and in our families, you know, to not do that, to be driven by whatever's right in front of you, or to fall into bad habits, or to focus on the negative. Certainly if you grew up around someone negative, that's the habit you learn, and a lot of people are very negative. So just paying attention to where you're directing your energy, what you're choosing to surround yourself with, whether it's people, or your environment, or the kind of job setting you work in or even the TV shows and movies that you expose yourself to. And you can change your world just by making different choices.
0: So in relation to really what you were just talking about, our childhoods really shape who we become as adults and more often than not people choose not to find joy in their lives because of the circumstances from their youth. So why is it so customary for people to give in to those painful experiences bury them down inside into their subconscious, and essentially allow them to negatively reflect in their current relationships? Or, in other words, why is it hard for people to recognize those patterns despite repeating them over and over again?
1: Well, I think it makes sense initially to try to bury pain. Nobody wants to experience pain. And the only reason that I dig it up or ask my clients to dig it up is so that we can learn something from it. And I think most people don't realize that they're here on this planet to learn and to grow. And that's kind of, in my opinion anyway, our purpose. And if that's not your purpose, then why would you want to dig it up? the The only other purpose would be not to keep repeating painful experiences. And I think sometimes people just don't realize that there's that they have a role in that. They think it's just an accident or it's the other person's fault or it's the world's fault. They don't realize that they're creating the circumstances that are keeping them so unhappy. I think it's safe to say that
0: many of us in some form or fashion have had a difficult childhood or some negative experience in our youth that defined a part of us in our adult life. So in a society that believes in avoiding pain in every way possible, and considering that acceptable, and a pill to fix just about everything, how is it possible, or what is the best way to work through those painful
1: memories to allow spiritual growth to occur? Well, I think the short answer is it's just hard, and however it's worth it. But it's not, I don't think as hard as most people think it is. It's kind of like the monster under the bed. You know, once you lift up the covers and are brave enough to look at it, you realize it's not really a monster. Or the monster in your dream, that when you finally stop and turn around and look at it in the face, it becomes just a normal person. Sometimes it is real painful, but having someone supportive to listen to your story, having a therapeutic relationship that feels safe and comfortable and predictable, that helps a lot. I think it also... Helps to remember that there are ways that you can, that it's possible for the growth and the healing and the recovery to happen in big spurts. There are techniques and therapies such as EMDR that help traumatic memories go from being real painful to being not such a big deal, sometimes in the matter of one session, which used to take, you know, maybe six months worth of therapy. So there are certainly ways to make things more palatable, but you have to be brave enough to do the initial diving in.
0: So you mentioned the EMDR. I actually mentioned that in the intro, which was pretty funny because the desensitization. (laughs) uh, I was was struggling with that word, but give us a little bit of background on what that is, what What type of therapy is that?
1: It stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which even the founder admits is a terribly long name, but let me break it down for you. The eye movement part is about bilateral stimulation to the body. When you move your eyes left to right, it stimulates the left and right hemispheres of the brain. And in EMDR, we also use other ways to stimulate the body. We can tap people's knees left and right. Um, They can hold buzzers in their hands that buzz in your left and right hands or headphones that play tones. The whole idea is just to stimulate both sides of the brain so that they communicate more with each other. And the simplest way I like to think about it is that it's doing what REM sleep does in our sleep. So when we dream, we're processing the day's events. So that's where the the D is desensitization. So when you talk about a memory that's traumatic, it usually comes along with all the feelings and memories and thoughts about how awful it was. But during this treatment, you get desensitized to that so that the same memory doesn't provoke all the same pain. And reprocessing the last letter, the R, means that you reprocess the event with the other side of your brain, where you can see it in a completely different light. So a memory that was stuck in its original form with all the pain surrounding it suddenly becomes just another memory that's not a big deal. And that transformation can happen in the matter of, in a matter of minutes sometimes at several sessions but it's pretty it's a pretty quick process generally and a powerful one
0: is it similar to i've been doing energy healing work and part of the process to basically remove residual energies that we have, part of that being from our childhoods. We, we take on energy and, and sometimes we hold on to that for many years. Part of the process of that is a process EFT, which is emotional freedom techniques, is, which hits on acupressure points. So is that something that's kind of similar
1: to that? Yeah, I would say it is similar. EMDR is a more a complete protocol, you know, it's an eight-phase, technically an eight-phase process, so it incorporates lots into it. But yeah, essentially, I think it's all the same thing. We're releasing energy and creating a new neural network around the the event or the trauma.
0: One of the things you talk about on your website are the immense benefits of yoga therapy. Is that why you became
1: uh, an instructor? Actually, not at all. That was another one of those accidents. I became a yoga instructor because The guy I was dating and eventually engaged to, his parents were yoga instructors and they let me take the class for free. So I couldn't turn that down because I loved yoga. But then I had to do a research paper for that work to become an Iyengar instructor, and I did my research paper on combining yoga and therapy, which always made sense to me, but I didn't ever think I would actually do it. <laughs> and then I discovered this program called Phoenix Rising Yoga Therapy that does exactly that, and I wrote my paper mostly about that, and then I had to do all these hours in order to complete my yoga instructor training and I didn't really want to keep doing just Iyengar yoga. I'd had enough of that so I asked if I could do the Phoenix Rising program and have that meet my criteria and I had no idea going into that that I would actually ever use it. I just thought I was going to meet the criteria to become a yoga instructor but I got there and I did the work and fell in love with it and thought it was amazing and brought it home and that's a part of my practice now. So totally stumbled into it just like being a clinical psychologist. So do you often use uh with your patients do you often use yoga therapy sometimes i wouldn't say often my practice might be better if i did often use it but people are pretty resistant to it they have a hard time wanting to get into their bodies we're a culture that's very disconnected we're head up and We ignore the body completely, especially when you go into the realm of suggesting that what's going on in your body is related to your life or your emotional state or your happiness or lack thereof. Um, People just don't like that idea so much, um, especially in a fairly conservative part of the country that we live in.
0: So what, what do you think it is about our culture? Why are we? so disconnected? Why is it so difficult for people, especially when you compare us to other cultures who really honor the practice of taking time for themselves and and praying and meditating and whatnot, and yoga being extremely beneficial. I, I find it in my own life to be, I miss it terribly when I'm not doing it. Why is it that people are so disconnected from it and so terrified to get within their own bodies and to
1: to, if nothing else just try it i wish i knew and i think our culture is a very young culture and maybe that has something to do with it we don't have anything in the United States that goes back 4,000 years the way yoga does. So we don't have the roots here. We don't have any tradition. And we decided to do things entirely differently in this country than any other country has. And a lot of it hasn't worked, but we haven't quite noticed. And we're not really paying attention for the most part. And our the development of, of our culture just takes us further and further away from nature and I think further and further into our heads and away from our body you know we spend more time in buildings than we do outdoors and more time thinking and you know producing something out of our heads than anything else because that's what's expected in our jobs there is no room for our hearts or our bodies in the most part in our jobs
0: what is it about yoga that makes it so beneficial to our sense of well-being
1: I think Amanda There are actually a million answers to that question. And it depends on who you are, how yoga is going to most benefit you. For some people, it's so beneficial just because it gets them to slow down and focus and clear their mind and be more mindful. For other people, the benefit is more learning about themselves, about the way they approach life. Because generally how you approach yoga will be how you approach life. So if you're one of those... I'm going to master this, come hell or high water kinds of people, and you try to force your way into being good at yoga, it's not going to work, and you come up against having to melt away that method and try something new. Sometimes for people, it's a real avenue for spiritual growth, for connecting with parts of themselves they didn't know they had, or connecting with God or their sense of a higher power, whatever that is. In a real fundamental way, yoga's great just because if you do a real practice, it not only, um, of course, works, improves your flexibility and your strength, but also stamina. So it kind of addresses all levels of the kinds of fitness things that we need. And I'm sure there are a lot more (laughs) reasons than that, but those are the ones that come to mind for me immediately. Well,
0: I know that I remember, I was not one to jump on the yoga bandwagon. I remember in the early 2000s, especially with all the celebrities, I remember everybody starting it and doing it. And I had taken a couple of classes myself and I just thought, well, I really don't get it. How is it that Madonna looks like she does after doing yoga? Like I just, I didn't get it. Like to me, my mentality was, well, I have to lift weights to look like that. Yoga can't possibly do that. So I know that I toyed around with it for many years and couldn't really get into it. And then at the beginning of this year, I started the Bikram, which is you do yoga in 105 degrees, which sometimes when I'm in the class, I really wonder how I could possibly pay to do that. <laughs> but I know that the doing the practice with my focus has completely changed. I'm calmer, I talk slower, my sense of well-being is definitely increased but I don't have joint pain, I don't have back pain and I I feel like the stereotype or the statistics because that's what they always say oh well it's gonna help you get rid of the the back pain and the joint pain whatever but it really did I mean I have I've had lower back pain pretty much all of my life and so it's something that's manageable but if I get really stressed out or if I sit a particular way all day at the computer or something it just cinches up and since I started yoga I never have that problem anymore. So I can definitely say that there are, I sleep better too. love the sleep that I have. I dream better. I have better sleep. So I agree. I think that everybody has a different aspect or a different, what they get out of it I guess is different for everybody. But one of the things that you talk about a lot is mindfulness and being present, which I think yoga has helped me tremendously with. And as a culture, I think that that's something that's very difficult for us. What do you mean when you say mindfulness and being present, and why is it so hard for our culture
1: to be them? Mindfulness is uh, simply the art of being present, being, being present in the present moment, so not thinking about anything in the future, which often is worrying about something in the future, and not being hung up on anything in the past or regretting anything or worrying about what you've just done but simply being focused on what's happening right now this very moment and when you do that when you consistently do that you find that a lot of the things that you were upset about or worried about are complete figments of your imagination things that never happen things that or things that happened and are over and there's no need to worry about them anymore. And mindfulness slows down your whole experience of life. As I've become more mindful, time has slowed down immensely. I no longer have that sense of time whizzing by. And it's because I appreciate what's in front of me at any particular moment, even if I don't like it. (laughs) And our culture's just not about that. Our culture's about racing through this thing to get to the next thing to accomplish that other thing on the list. And uh, it's very much a lost art. And there's so many benefits to mindfulness that I'm not sure why the whole planet hasn't caught on quite yet, but we are getting somewhere. People are definitely slowly catching on.
0: I can definitely say that in the last,
1: I don't know, probably three to five years,
0: I've definitely, it's something that you have to work at initially because it is hard when you're trained and not focusing on what's going on right now. You know, to have 90% of, I think, what our culture is doing is not paying attention because they're always on to the next thing or thinking about what they just did or what's going to be happening this weekend. So they're not really enjoying anything. It's always about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And so it is gonna pass by really fast. And what's gonna happen in five years when you look back and there's nothing to show for it because you don't remember it? One of my favorite quotes from your website is. I believe the work of finding joy has become a lost art. Our culture overvalues work and undervalues pleasure, and we have lost that balance, and somehow ecstasy has become demonized. I just, I absolutely love that quote, and I I cannot agree more. I personally have always felt guilty or that was, something was wrong with me because I didn't want to go to work and work. 40 hours a week or 60 hours a week or whatever the, the norm is that you know our society puts on ourselves. So I was really thrilled when I found the book The Type Z Guide to Success by Mark Allen because it gave me permission to really balance work and play to really avoid burnout. I have always believed that as Americans we have really bought into this idea that we are seen as unproductive or lazy if we are not working ourselves to death and over scheduled. So What are some things that people can do to really allow themselves the pleasure or rather permission of doing more enjoyable and restful things
1: for overall well-being. Well, I think permission is just that. You grant yourself permission. I mean, I can quote data probably about how much more productive people are when they do give themselves permission to relax and to enjoy life so they actually become more effective, more efficient employees or workers when they relax. But really, it ultimately, it's just a decision. What's more important to you? Is it more important to you to earn that dollar or get that raise? Or is it more important to you to- to enjoy life. People keep chasing this dream that, you know, once I get that raise or once I get that promotion, then I'll be happy. But happy has to happen right now. You can't keep trying to create the circumstances for happy. Happiness, like the phrase, the saying goes, happiness is the journey, not the destination. And I think understanding that is maybe the real key to people giving themselves permission. I have a magnet about that on my refrigerator that says something like, at some point I realized that these obstacles in my life weren't something to overcome so I could get to my real life. These obstacles are my life. And... That's so true. Like We're not going to get past whatever heartache we're in or whatever pain-in-the-butt experience we're having right now and then find this sea of joy on the other side. We have to create joy amidst the obstacles and amidst the pain and amidst the job that's not perfect or the paycheck that's not big enough.
0: I love that with what you say about finding the happy now. I think that that is so important because so many, which we've been talking about is how we're constantly thinking about what's about to happen or what just happened and not being present and not really enjoying whether it's an obstacle or a challenge or something really enjoyable i think people especially in america are really hard not only on themselves but they're not grateful for even some of the smaller things that happen in our life i know i just got uh, an opportunity to start writing for online magazine and Probably if I'd gotten that experience maybe five years ago, my attitude might have been more of, well, of course, of course I get this because I've been working really, really hard and I've been working towards this. And I hadn't been working towards this, but I was extremely grateful that they felt that I brought to the table the necessary content that they wanted and that they felt that I was a good enough writer to supply content for their website so I've noticed a huge shift in in my consciousness just as far as how important it is to be grateful but I think that as Americans I don't know if it's necessarily that we're fighting for that paycheck or whatever it is that's driving them past all the the important stuff but I think that we're highly judged I think a lot of our decisions are based on our family our friends people's perceptions around us and we're not necessarily living our own lives we're living the lives of others. If we're doing that and we're not living for ourselves and we're not being present and we refuse to get into our bodies, you know, at some point the bottom's going to fall out from under us. What is it that that we can do if we're being judged and our we're living our lives through somebody else to really allow ourselves that permission? If you don't even know to ask
1: or you don't even know that the bottom's about to drop out. Mhm. So permission's a tricky thing. I mean, we all have the choice to give us give ourselves permission for anything at any given time but we have so many shoulds and constraints and rules and judgments or perceived judgments to overcome that i think it's pretty tricky sometimes sometimes we have to be ready we have to be in a place where we're open to change where we're prepared for it so that when the opportunity comes along we walk through the door. And sometimes I think we have to work on our values, work on switching, you know, transitioning to a place where, for example, where experiencing joy becomes more important than earning more money, or relaxing and enjoying ourselves becomes more important than pleasing the boss or, you know, whatever. We, we need to evaluate where we are and if we don't like where we are, give ourselves permission to make a change.
0: One of the things that you mentioned was the change and, and being open to change, which a lot of people are terrified of change in their life. Not really sure why. I'm actually a person that loves change. I like to mix things up and, and you know, invite new circumstances. Why is it that so many people are fearful of change? What what about the, the human condition? Why do we get so many people get so wrapped up in, oh, I don't want to do that because it's going to include change. My mother's one of them. My mother is the type of person that will live in a house until she dies. She will work at the same job. I mean, she's she hates change because it makes her uncomfortable. So, so why are there some people that just are so fearful of
1: it? Well, I think it's the fear of the unknown and a lot of people assume that what's unknown might be bad or worse than what we currently have so let's play it safe and stick with what you got you know and we all get comfortable with what we have and it becomes predictable and easy to manage or maybe not but we think so (laughs) so fear fear of the unknown and fear of of growing of of becoming or experiencing something new. One of my teachers uses the metaphor that being a soul in a human body is sort of like a cheetah in a snail shell, that um, the human experience is very limiting. And if if we had any inkling of what our soul was really all about, we would have no fear. We would just bolt wherever like the cheetah does. But there's something very human about being terrified of taking any particular step um, particularly because sometimes that involves pain and like we talked about earlier we're highly motivated to avoid pain
0: i've always said that we have bought into this idea that americans are really seen as unproductive or lazy if they are not working or overworking and overscheduled. so What are some things that people can do to really allow themselves the pleasure of doing more enjoyable and restful things? I I think that this kind of goes along with the idea of permission, but how do they overcome the guilt and give in to the idea of it being okay, that taking the afternoon off or taking a nap or doing something that's really creative or enjoyable to themselves is Perfectly
1: acceptable and it's it's allowed. I think that guilt is generally induced by other people uh, and by our culture in general. There are expectations, whether it's you know the company you work for's expectations or your families or anybody else that is in conflict with what you might want to do. And so I think the answer to that is to get really clear of, with yourself about what's okay and what's not okay, and not just buy into other people's rules about that or other or the culture's rules about that you know all we have to do sometimes is see that there's another way to be to help wake us up to the fact that we have a choice about it it's not just the way it is and for me that was going to another country and experiencing the way they do life over there with six weeks of vacation in the summer and a siesta every day at noon and you know, then you come home to an, to America and realize that this is really twisted and not right. And then you no longer buy into the idea that this is how it has to be because you know that there are other cultures that aren't like this. So, wow, well, I'm going to create that culture for myself. I don't know about you.
0: <laughs> Where did you go? Was it Italy? <laughs> F, mainly Italy. So one of the things that you talked about is choice and for some reason as Americans I think that with all the negative emotions of guilt and judgment and our family units or friendships or whatever it is that's around us that really affects uh, our day-to-day lives one of the things as Americans I think what it comes down to is we don't always feel like we have a choice why is that why is it that we feel that we have to suffer and that we have to live with these things that we don't want to do or these lifestyles that we don't want to live because we feel like we don't have a choice.
1: I kind of think that's one of those conditions of being human. That again, if we fully understood or experienced our soul without the human condition, we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have infinite choices about everything. But I think part of the task of being human is to realize that you have choice over and over and over again. I find with my clients that depressed people have often simply forgotten that they have choices and they feel trapped and stuck and when I offer suggestions at first they say I can't do that or they can't see a way that they can do that but once it finally clicks again that they always have choices um, things start to shift and I certainly know in my life there have been times when I've forgotten some of the choices I had or times when I felt like I couldn't make the choice I wanted to like I wasn't allowed to that was a bad thing or Um, unacceptable. Uh, When I got divorced, I was having dreams at the time about being thrown in jail or about stealing cars and being locked up because I felt like I wasn't allowed to get divorced. And I think that is buried pretty deeply in our psyches, that if our culture or our families or our peer group tell us either directly or indirectly, that we're not allowed to do something, then it feels like it's not a choice anymore. But it's always a choice. We just have to be brave sometimes.
0: I think that's interesting because we forget that we do have a choice and we forget that, that, that there is an option. So sometimes the biggest enemy is ourselves. Sometimes we are our biggest obstacle. I went on a retreat at the beginning of the year that allowed us to go out into nature and I got kind of thrown into the experience not knowing what the heck I was getting my into. I just kind of signed up to it blindly. But it was really about a soul path and being comfortable and, and really getting connected with the Spirit. What was so interesting on the very first day is I'm sitting in a circle with all of these very experienced nature soul based experts who have been on these journeys before who have soul names. They're very advanced and there's me who's never done this before and we were getting ready to go out onto the land as they told us and we would be out there for three hours. And so I remember being absolutely terrified because I had no idea what I'd signed up for. But I remember asking, what exactly is it that we're looking for? I loved Lauren's answer. Those are exactly the questions that you need to be asking. So I think sometimes in our journey to our soul and getting connected back to ourselves is it's okay to ask those questions and sometimes it's better to have more questions than answers. Find those questions. I think that a lot of people don't slow down enough to have questions. It's okay not to have answers to them right away. Jamie, I have really enjoyed talking with you today. How can people find out more information about you or your services or get in contact with you?
1: My website is findyourjoy.org or jamiegrich.com and that's spelled J-A-M-I-G-R-I-C-H And if people want to email me, it's jamiegrich at gmail.com. And my phone number is 615-293-2301. I'd love to hear from you.
0: It's hard to believe that someone can just fall into becoming a clinical psychologist, especially after years of schooling. But I think it is important to remember that we all have a sole purpose. And while here in these earth vessels, we are here to learn and help one another. Learning is about overcoming our seemingly difficult life experiences and facing those challenges head on, something Jamie is an expert in. We are infinite beings with unlimited potential and we shouldn't accept or allow negative emotions to consume us. I guess Aerosmith was right, it isn't about the destination, but the journey that truly matters. Take time to find your happy now. Practice staying present and being mindful. I'll admit, it's a hard habit to break that constant chatter in your own mind. But once you do, you'll amaze even yourself. I want to thank you for listening today. I'm your host, Amanda, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. If you'd like more information on this show or have a question or comment, please email us at zenchakras at gmail.com. You can also visit the blog at zen-chakra.blogspot.com. And be sure to join us at our forum at zenchakra.myfreeforum.org. Bye for now.